Good. It's good to see you all. What a blessing to praise our Lord. And uh, one announcement is we will be having a uh, night of praise coming up this Saturday at 7 p.m. So come on out for that. That uh, starts at 7, coffee, tea, and then praising the Lord from 7. Well, we'll be praising before, then, and after. But while we're here, it'll be 7 to 9-ish. So uh, feel free to come out for that. It should be a great time of fellowship and really just, it's, it's awesome that the King of Kings receives our praise. You know, we might receive something and just want to exchange it, but he treasures our praise because he treasures us. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, there won't be any biblical theology today after the service because Bob is away, but uh, that will be picking up on Tuesday and again next Sunday. So big takeaway Saturday night for March. We're having some praise here. So should be a blessing. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us all, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are a holy, righteous God who has called us, who has loved us, who has revealed yourself to us, given us your word, and given us your spirit to empower and guide and comfort us. And we thank you for the opportunity to have fellowship in the body of Christ together, that we can open your word, we can proclaim your truth, and we can walk in light of it every day. And I pray, Lord, we would humble ourselves before you to receive of you. We would be hungry. We would be thirsty for what you have to say, that we'd lay ourselves aside and our own ideas that we might draw near to you and worship you in spirit and in truth. And I thank you for uh, this gathering, my brothers and sisters here today and those watching online. And we pray, Lord, we would just draw near to you as you draw near to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be in Genesis chapter 35 today. We don't hear the word providence spoken very often, but providence, it's used uh, to speak of God, particularly how he foresees needs and meets them. So before we are aware of a need, God has already provided for that. And I like what Webster said. He said, a belief in divine providence is a sort of great consolation to men. So knowing that God exists, knowing that he knows us and our needs and he's provided for them, we can look to him. Like God created the earth, all living things by his power, but we still need him for life today. And he's provided himself even in the midst of trials, even when we're going through grief. And uh, in our passage, where we've come up to is Jacob he had uh, met the Lord in Bethel. So God had appeared to him in a dream. He said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to supply all your needs. And he did for 20 years. And then he finally directed him to return back to Canaan and his father's house. And as Jacob walked, he progressed in faith with the Lord. So he grew spiritually and that was the Lord's work. The Lord was working in his life and bringing him to a place of surrender so that when he wrestled with that man and uh, his hip was put out of joint, he was in pain, but he held on for the blessing. And uh, even though the Lord allows pain and can even cause pain in our lives, he's a healer. He's a restorer. And so he hung on and he had the faith to do so. And so may that be a good example for us, knowing that salvation is God's work, deliverance is God's work, but also sanctification is God's work. He is working in our lives. He is the one changing us and making us more like him. And neither one, salvation or sanctification, happens apart from God. 
he has to be involved in that process. We need him. We can't accomplish through the flesh what only he can do through his spirit. And so while we remain on earth, we're called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, to put our faith in practice. And we can fall into the trap that thinks my spiritual growth or maturity falls squarely upon my shoulders to accomplish through my efforts. But understand, God gives us through his spirit that strength and ability to cooperate with him, to humble ourselves. It's not just hard to follow Jesus, it's impossible. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. And he brings salvation and hope and he guides us and he's patient with us. Sometimes I think I'm patient until I have to wait. And I realize I'm really not as patient as I thought. Like I have to keep being patient. It's one thing to be patient about one thing. Like, okay, I'm going to be patient about this. But then it keeps happening or nothing happens. Because we're wanting the situation to change. We're wanting someone else to change while God wants us to change. And so we have to respond to him in, in humility and submission. Patience, it's a fruit of the spirit that doesn't grow sour or bitter when progress isn't immediate. It keeps loving, it keeps hoping, keeps waiting on the Lord. Genesis 35, verse one, we have our passage. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Now some estimate about seven years had, taken, had passed since Jacob crossed the brook and he headed back to the land of Canaan. Now if that's accurate, God's word to arise and go to Bethel, it came 27 years after he fled and went to his father, his uncle's house. So it's been a long time and he's been back in Canaan for seven years. Remember when he first, the Lord first met him, he was, in a, he was dreaming, he was leaving Esau because Esau wanted to kill him, his brother, after he stole his blessing. And as he's dreaming, he sees God and then there's this ladder with these angelic ministers on their divine errands and God spoke to him. He repeated the same promise that he had made to Abraham, his grandfather and Isaac, his father, that he would give him the land, that he would make his descendants a blessing in the whole earth, that he would be with him and he would not leave or forsake him. And Jacob woke up. He was shocked. He's like, wow, a divine encounter with God. Now, if you turn in your Bibles back to Genesis 28 verse 18, this is what happened the first time Jacob was in Bethel. Genesis 28, starting in verse 18. It reads, Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a 10th to you. So the place had been called Luz after this dream. Jacob calls it Bethel, which means house of God. So this is where God dwells. And he made a vow. He said, if God's with me, if he brings me back safely, if he gives me food to eat and clothes to wear, then God will be my God. I will give him a tenth of what he gives me in sacrifice and worship. So 27 years later, 
on the heels of what we talked about last week with the rape of Dinah and the slaughter of Simeon and Levi, how they went into the town and killed the people there in Shechem, God speaks to Jacob. And God says, rise from the land, that plot of land that you've bought in Shechem, and go to Bethel. Go dwell there. God's command, a gentle reminder of what Jacob had promised all that time before. He's been in the land seven years. He procrastinated. Maybe he had forgotten what he said to God. But God was faithful. He was forgetful. God was faithful. And God reminded him of what he had said. And notice that there's no threats of punishment here. There's no browbeating for like, you said you would do it and look what you're doing now. He wasn't guilting him or manipulating him. And God's goodness and long suffering that leads to repentance. It also leads us to obedience. And he heard God's voice and he took action as we'll see. He providentially guided him to keep the word that he had made to God. He needed God's reminder and God spoke to him. And how good it is, it, is it to know that God will also speak to us and he'll remind us of things that we've said we would do that we've neglected to do. Not to guilt us or embarrass us, but so that we can have fellowship with him renewed. Genesis 35 verse two. And Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. Jacob obeyed the Lord. He did what God said. He prepared his household to meet with God. And it might surprise us that in Jacob, Jacob's house, the man who feared God, there were idols there. Now, we know that Jacob was initially ignorant when Rachel had stolen her, house, her father's idols and sat on them. Remember, she pretended like, oh, I can't rise before you, my Lord. But she's sitting on the, she had tucked those idols in, on top of the camel she was sitting on. And uh, at some point, Jacob likely became aware that she had stolen them, but he ignored it. Didn't do anything about it. And then when his sons plundered Shechem, it's likely that they took some of their idols and their gold images and things that were there and brought them into the household. And it describes idols in their hands and earrings in their ears. This isn't to say that earrings are idolatrous or anything, but these were ways that people showed their allegiance to a deity. Their worship of a God was through the ornaments that they wore. Like people can wear a talisman or an amulet or some, you know, string that's significant that's saying, I belong to this or I am bound to this idol. So there was some idols in his household. And this shows us that acquiring idols is easy, really inevitable, even for God-fearing people. And there we need to be examining our own lives and to ensure that there is no idolatry. So he says, voluntarily surrender all your idols. We're going to be meeting with God. If you've ever, anyone here ever had an MRI? I've had one a couple times, different MRIs. Now, one thing they always warn you about, if you haven't had that delightful experience of laying perfectly still for 20 minutes or something, and then if you move, you have to start over, and I've had that happen. They, they say, do not wear any metal. Do you have any metal in your body? Because the magnets in the MRI machine are very strong. 
20,000 to 60,000 times the force of gravity. So if you have metal on your body that can be pulled by a magnet, it's going to move with great force, great speed out of your body or into your body, and you don't want that happening. So they take all these precautions that you don't have any, you don't carry any metal into that room. Now it makes perfect sense to us to prepare to go into an MRI. Like, all right, no metal. I need to get that off of my body. I'm not holding it in my hands. I don't have these cool earrings on that could be pulled into a machine. It makes perfect sense that Jacob would prepare himself and his family to meet with a holy God. Preparing his house because God abhors idols and he abhors sin. His judgment of sin is more severe or sure than magnetism or gravity on earth. It's like, this is a guarantee. We cannot bring that into the presence of God. So we need to be ready to meet God. They were to relinquish their idols, to wash themselves and take clean clothes and put them on. And so at God's word, he took the initiative to clean his house. And this is really the responsibility of a dad, a parent, really to yourselves and the Lord to prepare yourself to meet God, to lead, to not wait for others to set the pace. Uh, and it's great when God can even use a child to show us our need to surrender an idol. But in this case, Jacob takes the, takes a, the initiative to say, guys, we need to get rid of these idols that have come into our house. We need to get rid of them to meet the Lord to get right with God. So they gave him all their idols. It says he buried them in a tree in Shechem. Verse five, and they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alan Bachuth. So Jacob, he had been concerned for the safety of himself and his house. Remember after his sons had killed the people of Shechem, he's like, you have made me to stink in this society. And we are a few people. We're not a large family. We're not warriors. But you have put a big target on us because of what you did by killing them and plundering the people of Shechem. But it says here that God put the terror of them, the terror of the Lord upon the cities all around them. And we read about the terror of the Lord further on after the Exodus in Joshua 2. When Rahab took the Hebrew spies in, she says, the terror of the Lord has fallen upon us and they were all faint because of them. Now the terror of the Lord, that's not a Old Testament phenomenon. We read it in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11 by Paul. He writes this, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God and I trust are well known in your consciences. A judge in a courtroom that has a reputation to be severe or harsh with their strict sentences for criminals who are guilty, they, they would be a terror to those who, who break the law, right? Like if you had your choice of a judge, would you want a lenient judge? If you were guilty, that is. Would you prefer a lenient judge or a strict judge? 
well, most people would say, I'd rather the lighter sentence, please. But we who believe God is just and righteous and we will stand before him, we fear him. We recognize he is a holy God. He is, he is, a, he is powerful. He's almighty. And he knows everything. I mean, we don't do a lion any justice to just describe how beautiful their fur is when the sun hits it or how the mane flows in the breeze, like a majestic animal. That's part of it, yes, but realize they are a predator, an apex predator with long teeth and sharp claws, and they prowl and pursue the prey. And me going, it's not an animal that I just go up and pet, like, oh, let's play. No. The whole picture is like, well, God, he is loving, he is gracious, he is just, he is to be feared. And so he says to believers, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men because we realize we will stand before God and he knows everything about us. And he will judge righteously. That is something that aids us, it says, to persuade others to get right with God now rather than waiting until it's too late. So the question is, what do you know of the terror of the Lord? Is that familiar? Is that something you've considered? The terror of the Lord. Now we know what it's like to, as a kid. Most of us were kids at some point. Most of us can remember what it's like to be a kid. And when you're in trouble, when you have a guilty conscience over something that you've done, you know that you've been found out and you know it's time to answer for it. And you're saying, okay, go into that room. We're gonna talk. And you're like, uh-oh, that? terror. That's what it's talking about. That's sort of like, oh no, someone that, and there's no question that they love you. That's not the problem. The problem is you have offended them and now you must answer for what you've done and you know you've done wrong. So we're called to repent of that, to remove that sin from us by God's grace. So the terror of the Lord, it prompts people to be reconciled to God now through faith in Jesus, repenting of our sin, obeying and doing what's good. And so the people of the land, they left them alone because of the terror of the Lord. They're like, we're not going to touch those guys because of their God. Their God, Jacob and his family, all those, you know, little kids, they're not intimidating us at all, but their God, we fear him. And so they did not pursue them. They did not attack them. So Jacob, comes to Bethel. He fulfills that promise to God. He made about 30 years previously. It says he built an altar to sacrifice and he called the place El Bethel. El is God. And so previously he called it the house of God. Now he calls it the God of the house. And you see this growth in him where he really loved the place. He, he kind of exalted the majesty of the place, the geographic location. This is where God met with me. This is where God lives. This ground is special. And so he poured out that oil on his pillow, the rock pillow that he had. But now, now having met with God, his focus is on God, the God of the house. And there's a big difference between the house of God and the God of the house. The focus is now on God rather than just where God spoke to him. His thoughts previously, remember, he's like, are you going to give me bread to eat, clothes to wear? Are you going to be with me and help me? Are you going to bring me back safely? It was all kind of about him. Now he's like, honor God, the God of the house. 
Now we have this, this really cool thing of, of Jacob returning to Bethel and now the God of the house and then his nurse, his mother's nurse dying. First he buried idols and now he buries an old friend. It's likely that Deborah raised Rebecca from a child and had accompanied her to uh, Isaac when they were married. And so Jacob would have known this woman his whole life. She was very dear to him. And it was a sad occasion because what it's called, this Alan Bahuth, it means oak of weeping. So they were really sad. And our response in time of grief, it reveals our genuineness of faith. When we have grief, when we have loss and pain, it, it compels us who know the Lord to seek the Lord. But we can also feel because of our pain, God is pushing us away. But realize that God never pushes anyone away. With his loving kindness, he draws us. He still loves us even in grief, even in pain, when we don't understand why things are happening. So let's realize it's never God pushing you away. It's, a, it's unbelief in our hearts that causes us to move away from God. We walk away from him because we don't understand. But know that a little faith in Jesus, it compels us to draw near to him in times of trouble and difficulty. He gives us the strength to hold on when we can't understand. And our pain and our troubles are no indictment against God's goodness, but it reveals our need for him, our need for help and our in healing. I mean, how sad it would be to depart from the only one who can help you, the only one who can heal you, the only one who can forgive you, the one who's been with you and promised to never leave or forsake you. Don't abandon your hope in God because of pain. Bring your pain to him. Let him heal you. Trust him. He's been patient with you. You wait on him. You serve him. Genesis 35, verse 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. If you are someone who's experienced grief and you wonder, where is God? This passage shows us the answer. He's right there with those who mourn. He's there. And he spoke to Jacob right then. And God Almighty, the one who wrestled with him and changed his name to Israel, right? Gone from heel catcher or supplanter to the one who prevails with God or God fights. He changed him. He gave him a new name. And he says, yep, that's your name. You affirmed. This is who you are now. You have a new identity because of me. And he gave him this blessing. The promise that he had given to Abraham and Isaac, he reaffirmed that to him, that you may be few in number, Jacob. You may be weak, but kings will come from your body and I will make of you many nations. I mean, isn't it awesome that you can trust God to do what he says, even if you don't see it? 
I mean, there were no kings among his children that he saw. It would be hundreds of years later when they had their first king. And the text where it says he talked with them and then he went up, it gives the idea of a physical form after they conversed. So after meeting with God this time, or God met with him, it says he took a stone, he set it up, he poured a drink offering, so likely wine and oil on top of it, a memorial. Now, these were valuable things, wine and oil. They would accompany every meal in that part of the world uh, for drinking, baking, for dipping and eating. And instead of selling that oil as a prophet, he poured it out unto the Lord. And it's not a waste. It was an act of worship saying, God, you have provided this for me. So I am giving this back to you. I'm not drinking it. I, I am freely pouring it out because to acknowledge it came from you. And so I'm giving it all back to you. I think of David when he, he just mentioned a lot. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm thirsty. I wish I could get a drink from the well in Bethlehem where I grew up. And some of his mighty men are like, you guys hear that? Let's go. And they go to Bethlehem. And there was a Philistine garrison there. And they fought their way in to get a drink of water from the well to give David because they loved him. And David, when he received it, he's like, I can't drink this. You guys hazarded your lives. Is this anything but the blood of the men who risked their lives to give me this drink? And he says, he poured it out unto the Lord. Now, what, what would you think if you had risked your life? And you're like, well, this is why we love him. Because he loves God. And he loves us. He loves us so much, he's not just gonna take something from us and go, thanks guys, I deserve that. No, he poured it out to the Lord. Remember Mary, when Jesus came, she had this alabaster flask and instead of just dabbing a little bit on Jesus, she broke it and she poured it all out on him and the disciples were like, what a waste. This is worth a lot of money. It could have been, you know, how many poor people could have been fed with this? But Jesus is like, she's doing it for my burial. Don't speak anything bad about her because the thing that she's done is going to be proclaimed from now on because she gave, she gave it to me. She poured it out for me. God delights when he sees his people voluntarily offer themselves and what he's given them to him because they love him in thanksgiving and gratitude. As a dad, I love to see it when my sons do something that's not a chore. They don't have to do it, but they choose to do it. And God looks at us and he delights when we do what pleases him, when we are, are poured out for him because we love him. He's given us this life. He's given us this time. He's given us our resources. So we pour it back for him only. Not so we can get anything out of it. It's for him. And God would say this in Leviticus 22, 29. And when you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, offer it of your own free will. So you do that freely. I'm not going to tell you, you've got to thank me. But of what I've given you, offer it freely to me. It's so much more meaningful to freely and joyful a sacrifice because we want to thank God rather than out of obligation or to earn favor with God or to stay out of trouble. And that can be our motive, a selfish motive. But this pouring out, this was just all for God. And we can make the mistake of ascribing value to a gift or an offering because of the retail value. But God's looking for a heart that's giving willingly and joyfully. 
Thus in God's divine economy, two mites given in poverty unto the Lord is more valuable than millions given out of duty or with the aim to impress others. Picking up in Genesis 35, 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So God tells Jacob, go up to Bethel and dwell there. We don't know how long they stayed, but in time they journeyed from Bethel. And as they neared Ephrath, which means fruitful, Rachel goes into labor with her second child. And it says she experienced hard labor and the lives of both mother and infant were in danger. And the midwife encouraged her, don't worry, you're going to have this son also. Now, there were no sonograms in that day, uh, obviously. And possibly she knew that she, he, she was having a son because he was being delivered breech and his legs came out first. So she could see he was a son, but he wasn't fully uh, delivered yet. But tragically, she died after the birth of her son a son that she wanted more than life itself. Remember once she said, give me children or I die. And ironically, she had children and it ended, to, ended in her death. And it says, before her soul departed her body, she called the name of her son Ben-Ani, which means son of sorrow. But Jacob did not let that name stand. Imagine your son's name would be a reminder of your beloved wife's passing. And every time you said his name, you'd be reminded of what you've lost. Instead, he changed it to Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. Now, this name change, it illustrates so well the redemptive power of God that he can take a sorrow and tragedy, turn it into strength and salvation. You see the death of a beloved wife, but now you see coming into the world this beloved son. Now, the right hand, son of the right hand, it's estimated 90% of people in the world are right-handed. It's the dominant hand for most people. And the word right, it also alludes to God's righteousness, his power to bestow honor. Like with uh, Jacob before his death, it says that he guided his hands. So his sons were here and, and Joseph put Manasseh on the right side because he's like, he's the oldest, he deserves the, the blessing. And, and Israel does this hand crossing thing. And he's like, no, no, don't do that. Put, put your right hand on Manasseh. He's like, no, no, I know who it is. That's Manasseh. But Ephraim, he's the one that God is blessing. He's, both are blessed, but I'm going to put my hand there. And I know what I'm doing. So the right hand, he, put, he set him, as the Bible says, before Manasseh. So we put the younger before the elder. David, he wrote this in Psalm 138.7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. We also see in Psalm 20 verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. So he's like, God is strong. God is, he's, he's emphasizing with that right hand, salvation, strength, and uh, Saying that God has a right hand, of course, it's an anthropomorphism. That's ascribing a human characteristic to God. So we can kind of have an illustration, 
But the reality is he doesn't need hands to bless, right? He, he operates, he's a spirit, an invisible spirit. Uh, and being left hand dominant is not a curse. It is not a weakness or sinful in any way. Both your hands are a gift from God. So use them while you've got them. Uh, but that right hand, son of the right hand, emphasizing God's strength, God's salvation. So Jacob, he, a lot has happened. He's buried the idols, then he's buried Deborah, and now he's buried Rachel, his wife. And God was right in the thick of everything. There's this notion that if we get right with God and obey him, things will become easy in our lives. And there's also a notion that if we we get rid of our idols and we seek the Lord that we're just at the mercy of spiritual attack. But really the truth is in the middle. We, we, we will face trials and difficulties. The fact is we're living in a world that's full of suffering and sin, pain and tragedy. They are not optional. Everyone will experience that. But in Christ, we have strength. In Christ, we have salvation. We have hope and healing in him. So placing our faith in him, it benefits us in every way because in God, we discover salvation, love, healing, and help. And we don't have to sorrow as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, like those who have no hope because Jesus is our hope, a living hope. And so Jacob sets up this pillar to mark the grave of Rachel, this memorial. Now what Jacob did not know is that it wasn't the pillar that she'd be remembered for, actually she would be memorialized in the, by the prophet Jeremiah. If you turn there, Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 15. Jeremiah 31, 15. She's included in a future prophecy and a promise. Jeremiah 31, 15 says, Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Now, verse 15 is very familiar to us. If we have read it before. We know it was fulfilled with the carrying away of the children of Israel from their land and they were taken into captivity. And it's also applied to the slaughter of infants by King Herod when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And remember um, that that was the place where she was buried where that massacre would take place. Now I can't imagine the sorrow and pain of losing a child, especially in such a brutal fashion. We've got a little one and Roman soldiers come in and it says that there's R Rachel's permanently weeping. She is mourning her children. She gave birth to her son of her sorrow and she, she didn't live. I mean, that was, that was the end of her life. She died in sorrow. But the next verse, we ought to make it as famous as the previous verse is infamous because it says, refrain from weeping because your work shall be rewarded. So the hard labor to bear Benjamin, she's like the son of my sorrow. My life is ending, but it would bear fruit in the end. That from that seed, from the, the children of Israel, God would raise up a savior who would bring eternal life to those who trust in him. He would be born right there. 
in Bethlehem. She died in sorrow, but did not need to weep perpetually because of God's grace and the eternal salvation he would bring in that place. And it's so relevant for Christians today. Paul said this in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So our labor, our suffering, though it be hard, like you can feel like I'm in hard labor. Now I've never been in labor. I've never given birth to a child, but, and, and all the labor is hard, but when it's hard labor and it's killing you, know that your work will be rewarded, that God will exchange your sorrow for joy, for salvation when we trust him. And our labor is never in vain in the Lord. Verse 21, then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Now it's not known precisely where this tower is. It's believed to be between Bethlehem and Hebron. And it was at this place that a terrible thing happened. That Reuben went in and slept with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. Now though the law of Moses had not yet been written, like rape, it was known to be sin. They knew that it was something that ought not to be done. It says that Jacob heard about it, but he didn't do anything about it. He didn't say anything about it until he was passing away. Now notice he did not disown Reuben as a son or anything, but he was demoted. He forfeited his firstborn privileges of birthright and blessing. And this is what Jacob spoke his last words about Reuben in Genesis 49.3. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might in the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So he defines him as unstable as water. Like water's at the mercy of wind and currents. It's easily moved. It's easily influenced. You can just put your hand through it and it moves. Like if you're in a pool, you can just swirl that water around. He's like, you're unstable like that. Instead of being like a stone that's dry and solid, like a rock, you're unstable. You're, you're heated by passion, like boiling water. You will not excel because of what you've done. So there were consequences. I think about, would you rather be, you've seen the videos of people on paddle boards, like a little unstable, like I would just probably fall right off. Um, very, a rock would be much more stable than the water. We'll see that God provided Jacob 12 sons and all of them had problems. All of them had issues. Not one was perfect. It was only in God where his strength, excellence of honor, power remained and excelled. If you're looking to that from your child or from someone else, you will not find that, but in him, you will always find that because he is our rock. He is our life. All right, finishing up in verse 27. Then Jacob came to his father, Isaac at Mamre or Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. 
So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. After this meandering journey over many years, Jacob comes to his father at Mamre. He finally gets there. And it must have been this unspeakable joy for Isaac, who was blind when Jacob had left almost 30 years before he had sent him away. His tent is suddenly filled with all these voices that he's never heard before. Voices of children and young men and daughters-in-law and his own son who's grown up. Greeted by 13 grandchildren, maybe even great-grandchildren. Isaac went to his grave in peace knowing that God had answered his prayer. Because he had said this in Genesis 28, 3 and 4. He said to Jacob before he left, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. And I just think of that old man who was in darkness for a long time, who had a, a quiet tent for a long time, suddenly, he's, it's full of kids. And he's like, God has answered my prayer. God has answered. God has been faithful. He's brought all the past. He's met with my son on the way and given him the same promise that he gave to Abraham and Isaac. He's made him fruitful. He's spoken with him. And he knew that he would be faithful to perform the promise, to give them the land. That hadn't happened yet, but he had begun to see the answer. So he breathed his last. He was gathered to his people. And this burial, it provided a reunion between Esau and Jacob. And in this chapter, Jacob, I mean, he went through a lot, right? He buried his mother's nurse, Deborah. He buried Rachel. He buries his father. His, his concubine had been slept with by his own son. A lot of grief, a lot of trouble with sin. But we should not allow the trials and the grief to take the shine off of God's providence, his promises, and his presence. God was with him. God helped him. And for everything God allowed him to suffer, he also provided consolation for him. He had given him those people for a long season, people that he loved, people who loved him. Without God, he never would have had them. And now he turns to God because God speaks to him. And I love that. It wasn't just, well, you need to seek God, Jacob. No, God came to him. God spoke to him. God initiated the contact. You guys have debated the question about when someone hands you a glass, is it half empty or half full? Well, it entirely disregards the, the blessing of being given a glass at all. We don't talk much about the glass. But you know, God's given you a life. He's given you breath. He's given you his promises. He's given you his presence. Whether you see it as half full or half empty, that's, that's irrelevant because he's given you himself and he's given you a life to live for his glory. Should we, and I like what Jesus said in John 10, 10. He says, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The purpose of this passage is not to focus on the thief, upon what can be stolen or what could be lost or die, but to fix our eyes upon Jesus who is our living hope. We don't need to be afraid of the enemy when we have the savior we fear and we love knowing he loves us. 
God's patient with us as we progress. He provides providential care for all our need and he, for our sorrows, he offers strength to rejoice. And let's take that step of faith to just pour out our praise to him for who he is and all that he's done. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this, this exhortation, really, to praise you, to be poured out as a free will offering before you, which is our reasonable service. Lord, you've given everything for us. You've created us. You've given us this life. And Lord, you allow us to experience sorrow and grief and loss. And yet you are there. You continue to speak and guide. And you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Lord, we worship you and thank you. And I pray we would be casting all of our cares upon you because you care for us, that we would not... Um, be looking to what we now lack or what we wished was different, but who you are and what you've promised. Just thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. We worship and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.